Welcome to the Stop Panicking Virtual Summit. Brought to you by today by the Public Speakers Association. I'd like to introduce to you Fox Beyer. Fox, why don't you take it from here? Thank you very much, uh, Michael. I will do that. Hello, everybody. I'm Fox Beyer, speaker, uh, speaking today on this Stop Panicking Summit, sharing my experiences with you and some things that I've learned over time to basically encourage this. Replace your panic about anything with a self-awareness and a commitment to focusing on the process. And we'll begin, I'll begin this way. I was supposed to be born in January of 1979. I came in October 1978. And when I did, my lungs collapsed. I was cross-eyed and I was put on a respirator. I was released from the hospital shortly before Christmas that year. And while I developed speech fairly early on and normally, I was wearing eyeglasses by the time I was 18 months old. And when I began to walk, I was stiff, my steps were rigid, and my feet landed in a toe-heel pattern. I was taken to a specialist, and it didn't take him long to come to a diagnosis. Cerebral palsy, a non-progressive disorder affecting muscle control, most likely caused by brain damage caused, uh, that happened shortly before, during, or after birth. Okay, my parents said, asking the specialist, what does that mean for our son? And my dad explained it to me this, this way. He said, Fox, the one doctor put it best. He told us that you were going to lead a normal, productive life. You just weren't going to be a track star. You see, just by him saying that, he was telling me the only thing of a million things to be that I couldn't be was a track star. In other words, I felt like the world, and I felt like my world was my oyster. What the doc didn't tell us, didn't tell my parents, and I'm glad he didn't, and he had no way of knowing, was the path that I would have to take in order to have what has been, by all accounts, a normal productive life. And it's been a path laced with three things. One, difficulty doing what for most are small, simple tasks. Two, comments by other people based on how I look and how I move. And three, numerous leg surgeries to keep me on my feet. So as I recount these, it's about the process. I can't panic and worry about when the next time these things are going to occur. In fact, I had to understand that these things were going to occur. 
And these are the obstacles I had to circumvent in order to have a normal, productive life. And it would do me no good to panic and hem and haw over them. First, as a general rule, it takes me four times as long uh, to get dressed as it would for the average bear, I feel. The hardest part for me, a dude, a guy, a man with spastic cerebral palsy, is putting on and tying my shoes. And I can recall one morning, I'm before work, I'm putting on and tying my shoes. I look to my right out into a parking lot and I see my neighbor prop his feet up one after the other onto the hood of his car and tie his shoes in like 10 seconds flat. And being that I can't do that, I kind of sighed. And then I thought about a time when I asked my mother, we were at the mall, I asked her, after I said, Mom, what are they looking at? And I noticed all of these people were looking at me. And she simply and so bluntly said, Fox, you have CP, you walk fine. That's it. So get over it and get used to it. It was blunt and to the point. But then again, I can't help but think constantly when I'm tying my shoes nowadays about the millions of people in this world that have it tougher than me for millions of reasons. And I'll give you a few examples. Take Andre, for instance. Andre was my roommate in rehab after my most recent leg surgery. And for his 21st birthday, Andre was given a motorcycle. That day, when he received the bike uh, as a gift, he took it out for a spin with no helmet on. He went over a patch of wet leaves and he spun out of control. And in this terrible accident, the first thing that Andre hit was his head. So as my roommate, after my surgery and rehab, Andre had no access to his long-term or short-term memory and was prone to very violent and profane mood swings many of them directed toward his own mother. So, for example, one day his mother would walk in and Andre would know exactly who she was. And so he would kiss on her and hug on her the entire time she was there. So happy to see her. But the very next day, Andre would lock her out of the room and turn to me and ask me, uh, who that bitch was trying to get in. So when I go down to tie my shoes, although I can't tie them, maybe like the average Joe or my neighbor, I, I think of Andre and it becomes very easy to find a different way instead of panicking to tie my shoes and therefore be on my way to having a normal productive life. Additionally, as I mentioned before, my path to a normal productive life uh, is committing to knowing that people are going to make comments about me based on simply how I look 
or how I move. Does it matter? This is going to last until the end of time. For example, I'm in the seventh grade and I'm in PE class and as a class, we're all changing after class and we had just run around the track and coaches timed us in doing so. And a classmate is going around comparing his times with those of his classmates. And I notice what he's doing. And he, as he approaches me, but doesn't ask me, I begin to say my time. And he tells me that I don't count. Look, if I had a dime for every time someone said or acted as if I didn't count, I'd be going there. To me, all this classmate was saying is that I didn't run well. So what? I've heard that before upon my diagnosis, when the only thing I was told by a specialist that I couldn't be was a track star. So, so what? You have to commit again to understanding and being self-aware enough of the things that you'll have to go through to get to where you want to go. And the third thing, or things in this case, that I had to circumvent or get through, push through, were numerous leg surgeries designed to keep me on my feet. Again, did I want to go through with them? No. But I also knew that if I went through with them and put the time in rehabbing, that I would improve my quality of life each time. So after my latest leg surgery, which was a hamstring transfer in which uh, my surgeon went in and detached uh, the muscle, the hamstring muscle from the tendon and reattached in a way that I have more flexibility in my legs, I was lying in a hospital bed about two or three days after the procedure. My legs are wrapped up and all sliced up and spasming. And if anybody's experienced a muscle spasm, I would venture to think that a, a very strong one is almost like getting zapped by a little bit of lightning each time. And I didn't know when these spasms were coming. They could be anywhere between five seconds and two minutes apart. And you couple that with uh, my spasticity to begin with, meaning if there's a sound that kind of pops up in the room and I'm not ready for it, I jump. And there's a morphine machine to my left-hand side, and I'm pressing a button constantly and hearing this sound go just noting the, the morphine going into my veins. All of this is happening when my surgeon walks into the room, and he's, he's dressed in plaid from head to toe, and he's wearing a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. And before Dr. Nuzzo even greeted me, he it seemed that he was forcing me to do all these coordination exercises, like rubbing your stomach while patting your head, and rubbing your head while patting your stomach. And imagine trying to do that while spasming and uh, injecting morphine in your veins. <laughs> it sort of didn't make any sense. And I got kind of perturbed, and I got down to business. And I said, Doc, what's it going to take for me to improve, as you said, up to 200% and get me back on my feet 
moving as quickly as possible. As, as funny as a jokester as he was, he knew when to get serious. And he must have known I was going to ask that question. And his answer to me has, has stuck with me over time. He said, Fox, in order to do that, in order to get back on your feet as quickly as possible and improve your gait and your quality of life as quickly as you can, go to bed each night after you've taken your 500th correct step of the day. Just to look at that, go to bed when you've taken your 500th correct step of the day. It's affirming a positive outcome. Panic is nowhere in there. It's affirming that I'm going to take 500 correct steps. That gave me confidence. It made me aware of the commitment I had to make. The commitment was taking those 500 correct steps. I'm guessing that if he phrased it differently in a somewhat negative fashion, such as saying, take no more than seven incorrect steps in a day, I wouldn't have worked hard and put in the number of steps that I should have to improve as quickly as I can. And I think it's those words, those 500 correct steps in a day, they're probably the principal reason why I'm ambulatory and moving as well as I do today. Now, that's part of my path. I couldn't stress over those things. I had to know that I was going to go through numerous surgeries to keep me on my feet. People were going to make comments because from now until the end of time, I'm going to look different than most uh, uh, average bears. And, and also small tasks, some of them having to do with, with muscle control are always going to be difficult for me. So instead of getting frustrated and panicking over them, focus on the process of finding different ways to accomplish them. Now, as a baseball coach, what gives me the right to think that I could stand at almost 40 years old now in uniform and throw a ball and make me believe that I could stand in front of professional athletes and try to help them? Well, as you know, I can't run. My college coach uh, used to tell me um, I'm so slow that I was so slow I had to speed up to stop. I, I, I can't hit a baseball very well. Uh, the same coach told me jokingly that uh, when he saw me hit one time, uh, he told me to, he advised me to take two weeks off and then quit, and that he had seen better swings in a backyard. But over time, I've had the ability to throw a ball pretty close to where I wanted to most of the time. But even within that, there have been struggles. For example, I was a junior in high school in, in 1995, and I'm playing right field in a, in a JV baseball game. And it was one of those days when it was so cold outside that if I didn't move, I wouldn't be able to move at all. And both of my hands were frozen into small fists. And I was having, a, having trouble keeping the glove on my right hand and gripping a ball with my left. Around the fifth inning of this game, 
my coach waves me in to pitch. He gives me the ball. I call Luke, my third baseman, over and tell him that I can't keep my glove on my right hand. He spends about a half minute trying to jiggle it on. And I go back to the mound. I take the rubber. And the first pitch I throw is over the backstop. And I couldn't get back to the rubber quickly enough to throw the next pitch. But before I could do that, my coach was nose to nose with me. And he didn't get in my butt. He didn't scold me. He didn't encourage me. He simply stated a fact that I always remember when I feel good in my good times and I feel bad in my bad times. He said, Fox, hitters don't hit how you feel. They hit your pitches. So make your pitches and get your outs. In other words, to me, he was telling me to focus on the process. In other words, treat the disease, not the symptoms. There's a story in the last lecture, Randy Posh. He talks about an ex-girlfriend of his who was stressed out because she was in debt. What she decided to do was to take yoga classes to try to get rid of the stress caused by the debt. He says, you're not treating the disease, you're treating the symptoms. Why don't you get a part-time job so you can help pay off your debt and you won't be stressed anymore? That really, for me, comes from the same place. Instead of panicking, okay, what kind of actions do you have to take to mitigate the symptoms, okay, that are causing your panic? Okay. Longevity-wise, okay, for me, what's helped me stay in the game of baseball has been advice from other people. I work for a team named the Somerset Patriots for an independent professional baseball team uh, here where I live in New Jersey. And last year, we had a player on our team named Jerome Williams. Um, Jerome has pitched for a, uh, for a number of professional organizations and has 12 years of major league experience. But he's experienced all kinds of ups and downs, um, and he's been hurt and been traded and, and been released a number of times. And I can recall last year in the dugout, one of our players asking him, essentially, what is your secret uh, to being so good for so long? And he said simply this, I'm present. When I'm out there on the mound, I'm present. I'm focusing on the task at hand. And I can't be present constantly thinking about or ever thinking about the future or the past. In other words, focus on the task at hand right now. Not what you have to do in the future or what you could have done in the past. Focus on the present to stop panicking, in other words. And finally, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. 
And it goes back to I mean, when you are on top and you're not panicking, there's always going to be people that try to knock you down off of what might be your designed pedestal that you've been reaching for all of your life. A great book that talks a little bit about this is a book called by uh, a book called Shift, written by Steve Sachs, S-A-X. And he writes in the book uh, in a line, he says this, a hard thing to accept about life is that a small percentage of people very close to you don't want you to succeed. Just understand that. Don't try to analyze panic and try to make it right. Stick to your guns and like people will find you. A college teammate of mine uh, posted a tweet that kind of noted all of this. He said, I see people these days constantly making references to haters in their past. He goes on to write, either I didn't have them, I didn't pay attention to them, or some people today are paying attention to the wrong people. I'll end it with this. Do not spend any time with anything or any people who attempt and try to antagonize your character. Instead, take the high road, praise those people in print, and if you want to criticize them, criticize them in person. So to sum up, instead of panicking, realize the path that you'll have to take to get to where you want to go. This might be a compilation of three or four things. Focus on the task at hand, not the emotions, okay, that are caused by, by the situation. Focus on what you have to do to fix it. Stay present. And again, like I said before, spend no time with any people who try to antagonize your character. Again, I hope you enjoyed that. I'd like to give you an offer. Um, I do have a book out of poetry called Letter Kindling, Igniting, Inspiring, Evoking the Fire Within. If you like what you heard today, email me off my website, which is foxbuyer.com, F-O-X, B-E-Y-E-R dot com. Uh, tell me that you listened to this, uh, this summit and that you like what you heard. Tell me what you want to hear more of, and I would be happy to mail you a free copy of my uh, book of, of poetry, most of which um, draws from my life experiences, a lot about nature, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of humor uh, mixed in there as well, because I think humor is a great weapon. And I'll leave you uh, with one of those poems from uh, the book, and it's called The Road to Success is Not Paved. Even if tough times last, tough people, they last longer. And as you go down that mobile ridden path, 
but your faith grows stronger. The path of life can be tough with many circuitous routes, sometimes walking through fire in a gasoline suit. But many know as life comes and passes, we all take great satisfaction out of rising from the ashes. Again, I'm Fox Byer. That was Stop Panicking, Focus on Self-Awareness and Commitment. Michael, thank you, and back to you.